0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. This is the last episode before Christmas, so I hope you're ready. I'm not done shopping, but I'm feeling the Christmas spirit. A week ago, my 14th annual Christmas caroling pub crawl sang its way down Magazine Street here in New Orleans. And yesterday, I DJ'd a set of Christmas music for my friends at NOLA Mix Records. I got to spend some of the records I've been into this season including the Longine symphonette and two modern Christmas classics, J.D. McPherson's Socks and Kelly Finnegan's A Joyful Sound. I'm glad to have interviewed both of them, and I'll put links to those episodes in the show notes. But I love both of those records and recommend them even if I hadn't have talked to them. From McPherson's album, here's Holly, Carol, Candy, and Joy, which has a new video this year in imitation of French New Wave Cinema.
1: Holly. Season jolly, decked divinely, head to toe, lovely green and scarlet bows, holding me, on oh my, old oh golly. Oh, when the snow starts to fallin' and it covers up the town, it's such a cozy fire when that holly hangs around. Oh What a lucky, lucky boy! A holiday with holly, carol, candy, and joy, candy.
0: I also took a quick family trip to Dallas on the weekend for the return of the Polyphonic Spree Holiday Extravaganza, which was also good for the Christmas spirit. I talked to Tim DeLauder about the show in the Holiday Dream album earlier this year, and again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm a sucker for symphonic pop and their tendency toward an uplifting sweep, so I loved it, but it helped that it was my daughter's first concert and my wife's first time in a live music venue since the onset of COVID. Needless to say, there were a lot of big feelings, and the whole production was a lot of fun. If you're a fan, tickets for the 2022 show are already on sale now at thepolyphonicspree.com. From their holiday dream, this is their version of Little Drummer Boy. This week's show features interviews with documentary filmmaker Mitchell Kessin, country songwriter Jim McCormick, and country singer Bailey James. I hadn't planned on making country as much a part of 2021 as it became, but since that's an area I don't know as well as others, I'm happy to have those conversations. We'll get to the guests in a minute, but there are two more pieces of news to deal with. One is that I have a story on the album Christmas on Death Row, Up now at the New York Times. Earlier this year, singer Danny Boy and John J.P. Payne of Death Row appeared on 12 songs to tell the story of the 1996 Christmas album from the label associated with gangster rap. After that interview, I pitched the story, and the results just went up this week. The piece is a look into the label's history and the function of Christmas music, and I hope you'll check it out. Also, I got one last piece of new music that I want to draw your attention to. This week, The Fundamental Sound from Brooklyn released A Lo-Fi Christmas. It's producer and multi-instrumentalist Dan Krug on drums and keys, grooving to holiday classics, and I quite enjoy it. Here's his version of Winter Wonderland, which eventually works itself up to a pretty heated state. I'm not going to let it run that long, but you can get a feeling for it here. In 2014, Mitchell Kesen released his documentary on Christmas music, Jingle Bell Rock. In it, he talks to Christmas music collectors, including Bill Adler, who appeared on 12 Songs earlier this year, and they discuss their passion for the music. He also talks to musicians who made Christmas music, including Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips, and Bill Doro, who wrote and performed the vocal on Miles Davis' Blue Xmas. We'll start with that track and come back on the other side with filmmaker Mitchell Kezen on 12 Songs.
2: Merry Christmas. I hope you have a white one, but for
3: me, it's blue. Blue Christmas. That's the way you see it when you're feeling blue. Blue Xmas. When you're blue at Christmas time, you see right through all the waste, all the sham, all the haste, and plain old bad taste.
0: Why did you decide to make Jingle Bell Rock?
4: The answer to that is uh, is several fold. First thing that happened was I was struggling to find a subject to make a documentary film about. And nothing was working. Um, It was literally a few weeks before Christmas. And I was at a party, a film industry party. And a producer who I didn't know that well, but who I knew of... Uh, who I'd sent a merry mix to the previous year, uh, came up to me and he's like, hey Mitchell, just wanted to, to ask if you're gonna make another mix this year. And, and I'd love to get another copy because last year was so great. And I took that tape to all the parties I went to and it just blew people's minds and the music was so cool. And I said, oh, hmm. well, thanks so much. Yes, I'm making another tape, uh, another mix. And you're still on my list, so uh, you'll definitely get one in the mail sometime soon. But let's have a further chat about this. The light bulb just went off then and there. I was like, oh my God, why not make this into a film? The main reason was I knew all of these artists, you know, from Wayne Coyne to, to Rev Run, DMC, to Clarence Carter, Bob Durow. They cared, you know, they'd been interviewed a ton, a ton of times about all the music they'd recorded over the years. But in my research, no one had ever spoken to them or asked them about their Christmas songs or Christmas songs. Some had just one song that they'd written and recorded. Others had several or a full album, like Lowe. And Lowe had, had been interviewed about their... They were the, the only band in the entire 32 song, soundtrack, who actually had been interviewed about their music, their Christmas music. And I knew that they cared as deeply about their Christmas uh, tracks as they did anything else that they'd that they made and created. And I knew they'd probably have an interesting story to tell about, you know, where the song came from and that whole process of bringing it to life. And I knew that that was also my way into getting to secure these people for the movie, which took still almost five years to secure some of the folks, some of the bigger names in the movie. Uh, the lesser ones took the time as well because I didn't know how to find them. Um, like akim whose father wrote Santa Claus is a Black Man. And she appears on that record from 1972, I believe. You know, she's a 10-year-old girl back then. Now she's a 45-year-old. And I had to, I found her on Christmas Eve that that year before we finished the movie. Uh, It was crazy. Uh, I had searched for her for six years. Couldn't find her anywhere. I mean, all I knew was her name was Akeem. I didn't know her full name. There was scant information about the record online. You know, her father had had been ill. Sadly, he passed away during the making of the film. So that's why there's no interview with him. But, um, yeah, I knew... Every single one of these artists would have a really interesting story to tell. And so I wanted to make the movie because I wanted to hear those stories. And I wanted to meet these artists and I wanted to dig deeper into um, that whole world. And I hoped that in doing so, um, you know, I would bring not only those songs to life in the movie, but open people's eyes and ears to a whole new world of Christmas music that they never knew existed. The subtitle of the film at the time was The Songs Even Santa Claus Forgot, which, <laughs> I thought was, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, Jingle Bell Rocks was not the greatest title for a movie, but it was like, I wanted something short and sweet and punchy, and I wanted to have Christmas somewhere. If you think about all the, like many of the, biggest Christmas classics uh they're really short and they have Christmas in the title you know yep um, so uh, you know that's what I was aiming for so that that was a that was a huge controversy with the with certain folks involved uh, in the uh, movie yeah. was that was that title but I Man. think it worked yeah if I'm really truly honest I was for many many years in, in what I call the Christmas closet Right. Uh, really shy about and hesitant to let anyone know aside from my closest dearest friends that I was into Christmas music that it was something I was passionate about and that I was spending a lot of time and money and energy trying to find because there was always a knee-jerk reaction that they thought I meant, you know, all the classic chestnuts that we hear ad nauseum that we're so many of us tired of that seemed to only be this tiny little Christmas canon and nothing exists beyond its borders, beyond its, its handful of songs. Many of them are classic chestnuts for a reason. Don't get me wrong. I love Bing Crosby. I love many of those songs, a more obscure. Now, King Cole song is a a big centerpiece of the whole movie, as you know. But I knew that the world, there's no world. I knew that there was a vastly more diverse and more interesting, and I was just very, this was the infancy, and I could tell. Having found that drawer record, that there was way more to Christmas music than than the chestnuts, and that this knee-jerk reaction that people would have when they asked me that question, when 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 I explained that I loved Christmas music, it just really bothered me. Uh, and I thought, okay, you know, I started you know with giving people tapes every Christmas. Okay, you think you know what Christmas music is? this is what I mean to listen to this and then come and tell me that there's not something remarkable about this Christmas music. And so those tapes reached some, a small, small audience of close friends and family. And I guess the the quick answer, the short answer, like I said, I'm long winded. Uh, The short answer is I wanted to create a more cinematic version a cinematic experience that would explain to people and justify, I guess, for myself, why I was spending all this time and energy on Christmas music and, and, and basically um, showcase all these great songs and try and change people's minds about what Christmas music was and is.
0: Yeah, no, I understand entirely. It is when I tell people I do a podcast about Christmas music.
4: Yeah,
0: that the first that it's either really or they're like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah, true. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and there are more really than awesome. So, um, so I, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I know the feeling yeah. well. You know, the interest in Christmas music is one of those things that touches a lot of bases. And yeah. I mean one of the reasons that interests that Christmas music interests me is because it is simultaneously spiritual, social, commercial um, just in the starting place and then I've always thought it was really was always and uh, what drew me to Christmas music is that it is an artist's challenge. Yeah. And what do you if you are if you're going to do a version of uh, White Christmas, how do you do a version of White Christmas that has a reason to exist? And if Besides. you're going to write a Christmas song, how do you write something that fits into this tight little window? And
4: yeah. what do you have to say really about yeah. about the holiday? Yeah,
0: yeah. And so it is a you know it's a challenge for a songwriter. What do you, you know, how do you how do you work in that space? And yeah. so. For me, almost everything I love about any music shows up in Christmas music almost in like hyper focus.
4: Yeah, so I, I love Christmas music for those all those reasons you just described. Uh, because and also because it's it's unique as a, a genre, if you can call it a genre, in that it encompasses all the different. It's unique as a musical form, let's, let's say it that way, in that it encompasses almost every genre of music you can think of, from country and western to hip-hop to heavy metal to bebop. to, And I find that fascinating. And it's great when you come across uh, a cover of a classic chestnut that's really where they've just taken it and twisted it and made it truly their own and done something interesting and original and unique, rather than just a faster punk rock version, which I can't stand, right. or just a heavy metal version of whatever, Jingle Bells.
0: Right. It's like,
4: why What's? Why does this need to exist? Why do I need to listen to this? I don't. And sadly, with it being so much easier to release music now digitally via Bandcamp and other places, I'm finding there's a ton of dreck, way more than there used to be, because for maybe the last decade and a half, two decades, when I started thinking about making the movie, you really had to commit to a Christmas song in that you had to spend a lot of money to make it possible to provide, to give, your, to, to give birth to your song, because you had to make a record. You had to go to a recording studio, you had to do all these things to get out there into the world now it's way easier to reach an audience immediately directly and there are there's it's a it's both great and not so great in my opinion
0: uh, um, I, I have to say I think I think if we realistically look at our collections that there's a lot of crap in there that that came sure. out in physical forms well, um, I'm not denying that yeah. but there's just
4: more, way more of it now that's all
0: I think. Yeah, maybe so. Or is, or it's easier. You don't, you don't, you I don't know. Um, maybe if, it's just, if maybe it it's is, just easier to find. Yes, that's that's maybe, it. You
4: know, it's just easier to find. You know? Yeah, It could be.
0: Yeah, we don't have to go rummaging through bins to pick up things and go home and find out. No, that's shit. So yeah, uh, take
4: a take, take a chance on a, spending five bucks on an album that you just know. Oh, uh, there might be one good cut on this. If that and. Man, I've got all these others, and I've only got twenty five dollars. Oh, I've been in that situation so many times. It's yeah, heart wrenching. So I know. With you know, I have one other thing to say. Um, when I started talking about the movie to people, it became really interesting because if I got that um, awesome answer, like "Oh, that sounds cool. That sounds interesting," once I got beyond the initial reaction. Uh, I would find without fail, every single person has that one Christmas song that for them basically encompasses the holiday. When Christmas doesn't begin until they hear that song. And and there's one song that resonates with them so deeply. And I found that with almost everyone I talked to. And that was a really interesting conversation to have with folks. And of course, the, the whole... Uh, my whole movie is structured around a single song that had that kind of an impact on, on me as a young child, and when that song never got played on the radio, uh, I might have heard it in my whole life. Now I'm 57 years old, maybe three times. Wow! You know, um, other songs from that record have been on the I've heard on the radio, but not that one.
0: So why don't you go ahead and tell why don't you go ahead and tell listeners what song we're talking about?
4: okay we're talking about a very obscure song on the b side of a nat king cole christmas album uh, on Capitol records called the magic of christmas with children and it's a song called the little boy that santa claus forgot
3: he's the little boy that santa claus forgot And goodness knows He didn't want a lot He sent a note to Santa For some soldiers and a drum It broke his little heart When he found Santa hadn't come In the street he envies All those lucky boys Then wanders home to last year's broken toys I'm so sorry for that laddie he hasn't got a daddy the little boy that Santa Claus
4: forgot and I remember hearing that for the very first time I was maybe just just I remember it it was when we had moved to Calgary Alberta. I was living here with my parents the first three years of my life. We moved to Calgary and it was the first Christmas after we moved in the summer. So it would have been 1967. So I was, I, I just turned four and that was the Knack King Cole record was one of the handful of albums that we had uh, for Christmas time. And in the song, Nakinko uh, has these little spoken word stanzas in between some of the sung parts. And the basis of the so- song is that for reasons that aren't fully explained, but this boy, his father isn't around. And because of that, he's forced to play with his old broken down toys. And Santa is going to not purposefully not visit him because of his familial situation. Now, all that is far more complex than what I perceived as a child. What struck me as a four-year-old was just the whole notion of Santa Claus not visiting here. That seemed terrifying to me. That seemed like something that, you know, you're a good kid or you're a bad kid and, you know, you have to be good and Santa will visit and you'll be... He'll bring you presents, and he loves you, and all these things. And the idea that that wasn't going to happen was really scary. And also, like I said, there are these spoken word bits in the song where Nat King Cole describes the boy's situation, and it mimicked my own childhood. My father wasn't around, particularly at Christmas time. He'd go on three, four-day benders and just be gone, uh, AWOL. We had no idea where he was, but... So that song just hit me so deep and so directly. And um, for many, many years, as I became older into my early teens and started really paying attention to music, not just at Christmas time, but through the whole year, started finding artists I enjoyed, buying records. I longed to have that feeling again this time from another song. And nothing for many years, particularly within the chestnuts, made me feel that same way. It made me feel something deeply like that. And it made me start to question everything that is there now, you know, kind of, that's sort of the theme of the, of the film. But it was that one song that, that really, um, and when we started making the movie, that that song wasn't gonna even be talked about or or, or mentioned you know, it wasn't until quite a ways into production that I finally had to sort of deal with, you know, why am I really making this film? And does that need to be part of the narrative structure of the movie and and be included in the film? And then when I realized it did, then it was like all these other questions of, you know, how to tell my story and you know, I, there are very few films where the director is in the movie that work and that are really good. And I didn't want to be that. This was my first feature-length documentary. And I there was so much pressure. And I just, I was like, I don't feel comfortable on camera. You know, how am I going to direct myself and then interview folks and control the whole situation and be in the movie? It was, but I realized I had to figure it out. People, well, people can judge for themselves whether it's successful or not. Ah, but ah, uh, ah, you ah. know, uh, that's 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 why I'm in there. It was inevitable, I think. Yeah. And and it's you know, it, it's it's the spine of the film. It's the emotional heart of the movie. And you know, I think it, I think it works well. But um, yeah, I'll leave that to the audience oh. of folks who check it out who haven't already seen it. So I have to ask:
0: Have you heard Johnny Adams' uh, version? A little boy that Santa Claus forgot.
4: I have my my dear friend Al Hitchen, who's one of the collectors of the film, lives in New York City. I knew of the Johnny Adams version, but he he put together like four or five years ago. He spent several years collecting as many different versions of the Nat's original, and he put them all onto onto see onto a compilation CD for me, and gave me that as a Christmas gift, which was an amazing thing to do such a sweet thing to do and, and so I'm always on the hunt for unique takes on that song and finding other artists who've who've recorded it and there's still a few I, I don't have that, that I'm looking for
2: He's the little boy that Santa Claus forgot And goodness knows he didn't roll lot. In the street He envies all Then wanders home to last year's broken toys I'm so sorry for that lady He hasn't got a daddy The little boy that said
0: We'll have more with Kezin next year. We had a good conversation, including a lengthy in-depth breakdown on what was involved in interviewing Wayne Coyne for the film. Alexandra Scott's back this week, and rather than ask her to join my enthusiasm for another sunny Christmas song, I steered into the heartbreak with two Christmas songs from Phoebe Bridgers, starting with Christmas Song.
2: Coming back from the country of good food and lousy beer This winter's so dry And the dirt road's so dusty At the lightest fall of rain The bacteria bloom You don't have to be alone To be lonesome Easy to forget. The sadness comes crashing like a brick through the window. And it's Christmas, so no one can fix it.
0: Phoebe Bridgers has done a series of Christmas releases. That started back, I think, in 2017 when she released a version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And since then, she has released four. She's released a uh, Christmas song in 2018, uh, a version of 7 O'Clock News Silent Night by Simon and Garfunkel in 2019. And then in 2020, she recorded Merle Haggard's If We Make It Through, uh, Make it Through December. And
5: that's whose song it was. I was trying to, rec- to remember it,
0: right? Okay, um, she has released this season, this Christmas season, another uh cover. Uh, I don't see it's a Tom Waits song, and I would actually have to relook and see what the name of it is because I'm blanking on it. Um, it's not if it is a, a christmas-esque song it is a pretty long a day after tomorrow it's a pretty long distance way to find find uh, christmas in it um so i thought like, but i wanted to pay attention i really like particularly particularly uh if we make it through december so i want to pay attention to that uh and also i have a lot of affection for christmas song and so i thought let's uh let's go there and because so often i bring you happy cheerful you know the world is the world is full of joy kind of christmas songs and and, and you'll remind me not everybody had a christmas full of joy alex so <laughs> i thought let's find a more tempered approach to the holidays <laughs> and my experience has been that nobody dies of too much joy in a phoebe bridgers song so
5: I think you're right there. I mean, I don't, I don't know her music very well, but, um, yeah, these are the first Chris, this is the first Christmas song I've heard to use the word bacteria. I was really tickled about that. (laughs) Um, so who wrote, um, the Christmas song?
0: It was written by, uh, an Omaha artist named, um, Dan McCarthy, who records under the name McCarthy Trenching.
5: Okay, cool. (laughs) It's got a great chorus. I yeah. mean, really simple for such a bleak song. I love
0: it. it yes, and you know what I'm going to do is um, when we finish, I'm actually going to play part of his version uh, so that you can hear it, uh, because the ble- you know because it, it does have a gorgeous chorus. Was it silence comes crashing like a brick through the window? But it's Christmas, so no one can fix it. That that's money. Um, but I have to say now that I have heard his, hers is the one I will always go back to frequently you hear when I hear an original, that becomes the one I start to want to go back to. And there's something in there that I still want. And in this one, not to be unkind, but he's not so special a performer that You feel like when I heard his version, I like it just fine. But I don't hear him bringing things to the song that make it distinctive. Everything distinctive is in the words. And whereas in her case, you believe her loneliness 100%. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You believe he is an Americana singer, a songwriter, 100%. Um. And so that distinction means it's his version is fine, but I'm really glad she cut it because that's, you know, she gets everything that he wanted to have in there. That's my feeling. Oh,
5: <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I love it. Um, it. I mean, it's a beautifully written song. Anyone would, would be happy to write that song. Um, but she, she does a, a beautiful job recording and performing it and it's a great recording as well as a great performance i would say that about both both songs um i i think i would listen to them throughout the year because they have a they just have a high lonesome quality that there are lots of flavors i like in songs but this is a flavor that i like a lot period
0: yeah i agree and i'm glad you talked about the about both the sound of the songs and the recording is because I have to say, it's one of the things I responded to very quickly about her is the feeling almost right from the start that she had a pretty solid vision of what her music was, what her music sounded like, and her ability to get to the things that are important to her in her music and you know for her to be able to emotionally access the places that she wanted to go And and to not only get there as an artist, but to make it show up in the recordings, Um, and so right from the start, it felt like you are you know you're you're with somebody who knows knows who she is artistically, and knows how to get it across, both as an artist and as a recording as as a you know as somebody working on a recording, so that to me struck me as really valuable and. Um, as I said, you, I I believe her from the start on these records And, and these are some of the first things I would, that was one of the first things I heard from her.
5: These are the only things I've heard from her beyond, I guess, the big single. And I like them both because they, I mean, there are some pretty obvious pictures and flavors that you get from Christmas and holiday music. But these take me to unexpected places like coming home from college and staying with my mom, but not really being a kid and going out at night to bars and but not really being an adult and, you know, getting kind of drunk. And I don't know, um, that sort of in between place where you just kind of it's late and you're driving around and your sick and you love sick and you don't, your family doesn't quite feel like your family anymore. And just everything's a little bit ill at ease. And I mean, that, and that feeling isn't necessarily specific to coming home from college, but, you know, just sort of, of the ground being, um, shifty beneath your feet. Um, I mean, not often that does take place in bars during yeah. holidays. <laughs> that's why liquor sales go up so much. But um, I don't know, just being in trucks um, with friends, having long conversations, just because you both happen to be home and driving around and looking at things, and late nights on icy roads. None of these are mentioned in the songs, but they all just flashed up for me sure. through repeated listings. and that that's powerful. Yeah. yeah, it has a lot to do with the writing, but also with the performance.
0: Yes, that I think, say, I, I, I believe in both cases, it's true. I give a lot to the performance because you do have such a, because I, I had went into the exact same place, that very clear sense of being a part of the scene, but not a part of the scene. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're connected to an event, by the, to the extent that you're there, you're participating, you are eating, drinking, probably laughing with people, but at the same time, you're not emotionally in that place with these people. And you're very aware that you have gone down a different path than the people you're around. Whether it is, as you say, university, whether it is being an artist, whether it is just, you know, the, your life and the ter- the turns it has taken recently, that all of that strikes me as both very real and and, and, and as you said, and I was thinking how sort of age appropriate it was, how this was very much about being a young adult and how, and, and in that place where you have these adventures, you're not quite fully rooted anywhere yet. And so you're not as rooted in your family as you once were, but you haven't sort of found your next, you know, your next roots aren't fully down either. And so everything, all that seems completely possible in this version. And, uh, and I think that's really powerful.
5: It's true, but I also, I mean, you can be a, I'm just going to say for me, you can be a 48 year old adult and have your roots all of a sudden come Come dangling. Um, so, I think it's emblematic or representative of that time, but it can apply to you. It, it can it can be meaningful. Sure. To anyone, and I think if we had more Christmas music that talked about the fact that it's a season that brings that feeling to the forefront for people, a lot more people wouldn't be so wouldn't hold such a grudge against christmas music right i think people just automatically hate um holidays that have the expectation that you're supposed to feel good valentine's day being probably the first yes Ah,
2: ah, ah. (laughs) if we make it through december everything's gonna be all right It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December God plans to be in a warmer town come summertime
0: If we make it, uh, if we make it through December, and this was Merle Haggard, I'm pretty sure 1974. And how did you respond to that song?
5: Oh, with great love and affection. Um, And, and I just love the way they recorded it. It's yeah. beautiful and simple. And then there are those haunting backup vocals. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, I agree. I find that one to be, first off Merle's song is so clear and the, the song itself, the sort of working class pain, uh, working class anxiety is so powerful in it. And and what's interesting to me is that his version is so clearly a father's song. I mean, hmm. it, it be, and, and I don't know if I hear hers, her performance as a mother's song, though, I mean, though it is obviously talking to a daughter. Um, but there is still, I mean, she gets to the emotional heart of it about trying not to disappoint someone else. Even though I'm not sure I 100% think of her in the role that the song casts as the person losing a job with a child at home who is going to be disappointed at Christmas. And that part I'm never so sure I buy, but I that the idea of the way she hangs on the... The, the possibility, if we make it through December, that phrase by itself, when she sings it, feels both so tentative, so guardedly optimistic, so guardedly, guardedly, guardedly optimistic, um, and that possibility that maybe if we could just get through this, things will be all right. Um, I almost feel like she's trying to convince herself of that. And, oh, she
5: definitely uh, is. Yeah. Um, I think anytime somebody says things are going to be just fine, you kind of know that they're not. Right. Um, why didn't you buy her as a parent?
0: That's a good question. Because
5: um, I did. I immediately thought, oh, I didn't realize she had a child.
0: I think what's in. I guess the reason I buy... The reason I, I focus on the family element with him, huh, You know, it may be, of course, being uh being a dad with a daughter, that it's very easy for me to identify uh in that way. Um and and it felt very consistent with his presentation, where where family is has, has been a big part of uh of, of his output going back as far as Bama tried. And mm. so to put him in that location and in country music, which is a largely sort of domestic music, music about, uh, music about families and, 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 and small towns and towns. I, that, that's not necessarily the, the, the association I, I do with, a, with young artists period young rock artists period that idea of attaching of attaching children to them. Um, that feels like a place where I would not at where, you know, not, not there's little that has led me to hear young rock and roll artists, male or female and put children in the picture. Does that make sense?
5: It does. But a lot of them have children. Yes. I mean, think about how young the Beatles were and Get Back and Heather McCartney was there running around. I mean, she wasn't McCartney yet, but she six and Yoko had just lost a baby. Right. And Yoko already had one child.
0: Yeah. Um, No, no, I don't. And that's, yeah, obviously that's not, you know. Although in both cases, Yoko's were before John, right? I don't remember.
5: Yes, she had one daughter. Who this is a little bit heartrending. She had her husband made her, her her previous husband made her give up that child um, and give up all contact with that daughter. So she had lost two children. Yeah, uh, the documentary. Right. Uh, And I I don't know whether she and that daughter ever reconciled. Hmm.
0: But uh, anyway that I don't the reality of their relationship with children is entirely different but the presentation historically has been that you know you that young rock and roll artists are sort of our, are are our un, are start unencumbered and slowly uh, slowly become cumbered so right. um so anyway but nonetheless as i say i do find that I go back to her, to Phoebe Bridger's version regularly. And because that sense of, you know, that sense of hope, a sort of desperate hope that filters through, no matter what the words are, you kind of, the emotional, the emotional element is very, very crystal clear. Yes. Uh, it's- and, and so uh, that I, keep, I hang on to. And I find very powerful each time.
5: I agree. Well, thanks right. for
0: bringing that to me. My pleasure. Coming back
3: from the country for the good food and loud beer. This winter's so dry. The dirt road's so dusty. But if the light.
0: Carfloats sells reusable, removable fabric stickers for your car. Here in New Orleans, costuming is a way of life, and people look for occasions to dress up, not only at Mardi Gras and Halloween. Carfloats believes you ought to be able to dress up your car to match your mood or the season too. They have designs suitable for the upcoming holidays, but also ones that simply reflect your personal sense of style and whimsy. For Halloween, I had ghosts on my car. Now that Christmas is upon us, I'm rocking ornaments. My daughter helps me put them on and loves doing it. You can peel them off, put them back on their paper backing, and then store them until you're ready to use them again. And so far, my daughter's less interested in that part. Want to see what you can do for your car? Visit Car Floats at car-floats.com. Put 12 songs, the number 12, the word songs, as one word in the promo box at checkout. Get 25% off your first purchase. Car floats are art in motion. This week, songwriter Jim McCormick makes his second appearance on 12 songs. Last year, he wrote his third song to top the country charts. The Good Ones by Gabby Barrett. We'll talk about that in some of his favorite country Christmas songs. We'll start with a little of The Good Ones. Then we'll get to my conversation with Jim on Country Christmas.
1: He's a phone call to his parents, he's a Bible by the bed He's the T-shirt that I'm wearing, he's the song stuck in my head He's solid and he's steady like the Allegheny runs He knows just where he's going and he's proud of where he's from One of the good ones He's one of the good ones
0: Since we last talked, you've uh, you had another another number one.
6: Yeah, Gabby Barrett, uh, the good ones.
0: Yeah, this is your third, amazing. right?
6: My third, amazing stroke of
0: good fortune. Yeah. So tell me, how how did this one come about?
6: She uh, was a third place American Idol and um, uh, you know contestant, and she <laughs> was represented by Red Light, which is a very successful powerful management company in country music and other genres and um we uh it was it was really as simple as i was walking out of the offices of bmg at about 6 p.m one evening after writing all day and exhausted and my um one of my uh publishers there rakaya marshall called me into her office as i was walking by and said hey i just got a call from red light and they're repping this uh american idol contestant she's She's nineteen or so, and uh, there's no record label and there's no publisher, but red lights involved. Do you mind? Can we? They, they were looking to put her on some writing appointments. Can we stick her on your day tomorrow with um, with Zach Kale and Emily Landis? And um, I just said, I don't. You know, you know, is it a good idea? You tell me. She goes, I think it's a good idea. I said, well, Let's do it. Let's do <laughs> it. You know, I mean, it was it was that deliberate and thought out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know. I'm a big believer that like every day is a threat to be a million dollar day. If you show up and do your very best. And I always try to do that no matter who I'm writing with. And that day I got to say like all four of us did that. And there was, it was, it was apparent halfway through that song that we were writing just a really well-built house, you know, that it was going to be a sturdy contender for whatever album she went on to make. And, um, but I didn't see it. You know, you can't see, there's no crystal ball. I didn't know. I didn't know that she would become so huge, so fast. You know, that song, um, I hope that she had prior to our song was just, it, it took a meteoric rise on the charts and then it went over to pop and became a big hit over there. So her, her, you know, we, we rode the tailwind of a giant debut single in her career. And, um, and of course, you know, our song is now crossing over a little bit, just got nominated for the um CMA Awards, Song of the Year, as well as the American Music Awards, Song Country Song of the Year, Um, so it's taken on a life of its own, way beyond anything that I that I could have dreamed up. You know, you know, I mean, those nominations are the biggest professional honors of my career, and I'm trying to let myself feel what that means and uh, and really take it in. I'm bringing my baby sister to the to the award show next week, and I'm thrilled about that because that makes it real in a a wonderful, in a, in a wonderful way. Yeah. And she's, she's excited.
0: She's excited too. So. Well, the only thing better than an honor is an honor with witnesses.
6: (laughs) 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 What good is it otherwise? Exactly.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This this is your first story. Your first number one with a, uh, with a female artist.
6: Yes. Yeah, I've had I've had many recordings by female artists, great artists, like Trisha Yearwood, and Kelly Clarkson, but this is the first um, tri- trip to the top with a
0: female artist. Was the experience yeah. different?
6: No, no. Um, I think no. I mean, the experience of crossing my fingers and saying a lot of prayers was exactly the same <laughs> as it was on the on the other two. Um, no, but it was, you know, I think um, BMI threw us a number one party outdoors, very small. And uh, Gabby was really gracious and, and giving credit to myself and the other two co-writers above and beyond what what it was called for. And you know, it was really, really sweet. There was a moment Emily Landis is probably closer, is, is closer to Gabby's age. She's in her 20s also. And Zach Kale and I are kind of the older guys. At one point in the ceremony, the two girls on the microphone looked at us and said, "You know, we want to thank Jim and Zach for writing. Um, we want to thank the old guys for writing a chick song with us, or something <laughs> like that." You know. <laughs> um, so you know that's the that's the only difference, and I think that's kind of the difference that I've evolved into in my career is that people, I write the people I write with now are overwhelmingly more than half my age, and that's just where the business is. And I and I feel very. I feel very honored and appreciated, um, and and grateful that like I've been able to hold on to a skill set that's still seen as relevant by a lot of the young people in the business. You know, I'm I'm a lyric writer, and so styles of music or production don't really come into my thinking ever. I'm trying to I'm trying to really make sure that that lyric is girded by sound subject verb predicate principles.
0: Right, right, yeah. What was your role in the writing room?
6: Uh, lyric, you know, I think um, Zach was producing that track. I mean, we all speak English, so we're all kind of chiming in on the lyric. But really, um, Emily and I are both lyricists and, and seem to lean into that lane. Um, Gabby, of course, was discovering the melody, maybe with some of Emily's input as well, um, and Zach's as well. Zach was building out the track on, on a piano and guitar. Um, and I'm always trying to really listen hard to the artist and facilitate what their goal is with this song, um, and really try to help them articulate in the verse and in the chorus, um, in an extraordinary way, what it is they're trying to say, you know, and Gabby knew exactly what she wanted to say. She wanted to honor her fiance with this song. And, um, it was, you know, it was just, it was, it was kind of a one, it was a really wonderful day. I do remember vividly, um, Gabby sang kind of quietly as we were writing the song, but when she stood up and got on the microphone and sang the, the day of demo, the work tape that day, I about fell out of my chair. You know, that was, that was like, that was like, okay, that's an extraordinary voice on her. And, um, I hadn't heard it until the end of the day. So that lit me up, you know? Um, but I came away from that day. Like I do most exhausted and feeling like I'd done my best and, and feeling also like my co-writers had done their best. Um, And, you know, I think, I think the only thing a writer has control over is writing the very best song they can that day. You know, you kind of set this trap so that when they go back into the pile of songs to choose which ones to record for the album, yours is laying in wait. Yeah. To say, to say right here, you got to record me because I'm a standout, you know? Yeah. That's, that's what I hope to do. Yeah.
0: Least. Oh, that's great. So we talked a few years ago about Christmas song, about country Christmas music. And we just really scratched the surface that time. And so I thought it was, it would be a good chance to both catch up since we hadn't had a chance to talk in a while, but also chance to go a little deeper. And this isn't even close to deep as obviously we've got a handful of songs here and there is so much great country Christmas that we can dig into and return to, uh, as time goes by. But, uh, you threw, me some, uh, you threw me some pitches here of songs and albums that we ought to check into. And I'm completely entertained by these choices. I went through, and like there were songs I found that I wanted to talk about because I love the hell out of them, and Songs that I picked, because I'm like, what on earth was that? And so, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start uh, with someone, yeah. else. someone else that you have written, w- written with, uh, Luke Bryan. Um, what have you, remind me, I know you did, uh, we rode in trucks. you written other for, you've written others with Luke Ryan, right?
6: Yeah. I got a half dozen or so songs recorded on Luke records through the years. He and I were very early on fast friends and co-writers in Nashville 20 years ago or so. And, um, I mean, he's always been a great friend and, um, obviously he's, you know, his work speaks for itself and he's such a great entertainer and a great connector. um, Anyway, I, you know, he's got a um, recording of Oh, Holy Night. And Oh, Holy Night gives me chills. Oh, Holy Night is my favorite all-time Christmas song. And it's like, I'm just a sucker for it, you know?
3: Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth.
6: Tom Fitzmorris, the food critic, had a little radio show on Christmas Eve one night. He had people calling in to sing Christmas carols and he'd give them a, uh, a gift certificate somewhere. And, uh, I couldn't resist. My brother and my mom and I were sitting around and I called in and sang Oh Holy Night on his radio show over the phone. <laughs> and, and, and hot damn, we got a gift certificate to Katie. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, but I love Holy, Oh Holy Night. Um, and I love Luke Bryan almost just as much. I mean, Luke really is a dear friend. And so like to hear, you know, him doing that song, I thought was a great occasion to just kind of like highlight two, two things that I'm two things I'm over the moon about my friend Luke and that song, you know,
0: what is it about? Oh, holy night that, I mean, it, I mean, it's a beautiful song, you know, as a writer, it's, as you know, what can you tell me? What can you tell me? What insight do you have into it?
6: It's, it's pure melody love. It's pure melody love. And maybe, you know, maybe it's because it's a Christmas carol. It's so far out of my wheelhouse that I don't look at it. Like I, like I don't look at it as a songwriter at all. Um, that it's quite simply this, Alex. When that note on fall on your knees, when they hit that fall, I'm just I'm done. Like I'm in the cathedral. I'm red. I'm I'm like, it's Christmas, man. Like that is the note, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm a big sap, you know, but uh it's just such a it's just such such a melodramatic melody, and um and I love it so much.
0: Yeah. I'd imagine it's also that you're not a melodramatic guy. That that like, it's like it seems to me like that's a, like that's a melodic concept that in a lifetime would never occur to you. And that's not a, that's not an insult. It's just yeah. that's not you know, that that's so outside. If 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 you stumbled across, you'd still be like, no, nah, that's too much. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. If we if we were writing it and you wanted to do that melody, I'd be like, no, no, that's too much. We can't do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, I'm sure it resonates with me on some level uh, from my childhood, and I can't pinpoint how or where, but, you know, it's it's just one of those melodies that's way under my skin, and every time I hear it, you know, it's like catnip. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, you said something a minute ago I wanted to pick up on. You said, you know, you, you, know, you, can, you can hear it and not have your professional sort of inner monologue kick in. Right. Is, is that hard? Do you find if you're listening to music, you're almost always, you know, checking like, yeah, no, yeah, I wouldn't do that. No, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. I wish I, you know. Uh,
6: only in, um, I would say country music, Americana music, um, kind of like older soul music, band Pan Spooner Oldham kind of song like, like songs where those lyrics and older country music, but, you know, and I think that's why, like, every now and then I just have to go have a 36 hour metal bin or something, <laughs> something way, way outside, because I like my brain really does need some music that it's not trying to analyze and evaluate and, and learn from or, or pick up a trick from or critical of, you know, yeah. um, but, and Christmas carols falls in that in that category. You know, I've got a few ideas for Christmas songs that I've never attempted yet. Um, I'm stacking them up and maybe one day I'll write a Christmas album. But. Um, when I listen to Christmas carols, it's almost like I can't see, I can't see the lyrics and it's really, it's childhood, right? It's, it's, it's sitting for hours as a small child year after year in front of my dad's record player and listening to these songs with my head against the speaker and being literally inside the speaker. Um, and that's what it is. It's more like a blanket than it is a song. Sure.
0: Absolutely. I get that. So you also selected Casey Musgrave's uh a Willie a Willie nice Christmas from her very <laughs> Casey Christmas from 2016 which is I love that record by the way uh, yes. I think that whole album yeah. is very entertaining um yeah. why uh why a willie nice Christmas
6: uh well first of all Casey's one of the one of the best things going in country music she's really she's a great writer, a great singer um she's got great co-writers Shane McNally and Josh Osborne are on that song I think um, she always makes a great record. And, and I love that she's, that it's a, you know, first of all, I wanted to highlight Casey Musgraves in case your audience has been under a rock for the last eight years. Um, she's extraordinary. She's, she really is one of the brightest lights in country music today. And of course, Willie Nelson is one of the oldest brightest lights in country music that we have, you know, both extraordinary talents. Um, I know that, you know, they're singing about their predilections. They could be singing about anything, bubblegum or whatever. I would still pick the song because it's the two of them singing together. And, um, and I also think there's something just sort of unabashedly funny about a very willy Christmas, like have yourself a very, very willy Christmas, a very, yeah. uh, a willy nice, a yes. willy nice Christmas. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm chopping the joke up. I mean, it's just like, just to hear that title song makes me laugh. Yeah. each time that song goes by, I'm like. Like, that's hilarious, you know? So, um, it's, nope. a, it's, a, it's a delight of us all.
0: Yeah. So, well, let's check it out and then we'll pick up, have a few more thoughts on the backside. So, this is all A right. Willy Nice Christmas by Casey Musgraves. I have to say, that is a song that I am inclined not to like, um, partly because weirdly I, that I, I don't really tend to want my pop song, my Christmas music to stray into Cheech and Chong humor, um, but I have to say, I am completely there. for Kay, I'm there for Casey Musgraves. I'm there for Willie Nelson. And then one thing I really like about that is that it, it does something that you almost never see from Casey Musgraves now, which is it's funny. Casey Musgraves' presentation, certainly her, her most recent album, and her presentation in general, it's not humorless, but it doesn't emphasize, but it's heavy. There, it's, it's all sort of substantial. And I think about the first time I saw her play Jazz Fest, and as, and it was after the first album, and so she's still she's in cowgirl uh, attire. She had like a right. neon cactus on stage, and and as a part of the set, she played TLC's "No Scrubs," and like and it was. It was totally entertaining. It was really was the show felt very light. Partly the presentation was very light, but it was something that I don't see from her now. Um, and while I enjoy the new records a lot, I kind of always wish there was a little of that lightness in there um, because it, it as an album, it starts to feel like a lot to me. I enjoy individual tracks more than I enjoy the albums. I respect the albums. I like all the songs on the albums or many of the songs on the album, but I don't necessarily want to listen to them as an album. And the fact that she then went and did a Willie Nelson song as a Hawaiian song. Also, I'm completely there for that.
6: Yeah. And I think it's the side of her personality that, that, that is still in her and and may come back on the records. Obviously she's been through um, heavy stuff and she wants to write about that and sing about that. So that's where she is with this most recent album. Um, but it, 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 I, I, the, the lightness and the, and the humor is part of what drew me to her from the beginning. Yeah.
0: Did you see her, uh, her Christmas special 2019? Yep. What'd you think?
6: I liked it. I think it had some of the lightness in it.
0: Yeah. It. If you haven't seen it, you need to. Um, I'm not, I, I, there are ways in which I love it, and there are ways where I think it's a brilliant catastrophe. Um, because it is self-consciously doing a sort of 70s uh you know classic Christmas special. I hear a knock at the door. Who's there? It's Leon Bridges. And um let's go up here. Who's there's a carpenter? Yeah, it's some musician, and yeah, it is all this very kind of old school old television corny as hell uh um uh, sort of setup and you know and it all all lead to musical numbers all from the record and you know which i which i enjoy quite a lot but it's also it's so meta funny but it's rarely actual funny like it has all the cor- super corny jokes that would have been in a 70s uh, you know, holiday special that aren't actually really funny to anybody. And I found myself laughing very little at the actual joke that was being told, but I laughed mm-hmm. a lot at the show. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a very odd and entertaining thing. It's worth seeing. It's much like the Bill Murray. It's not as bizarre mm-hmm. as the Bill Murray uh, Christmas special, but Great it works comparison. on the same axis. Yeah, great comparison. I agree. So this is very. Here's a very different, uh, different artist to go and going going to a weighty artist who who steers into the weight. You also pitch Randy Travis's Christmas album from 1989, an old time Christmas. Why?
6: He's he's the greatest voice in country music. He's the voice of that genre. I think. I think if you if you looked across over at soul music you would say you'd have a good argument that Sam Cooke is the voice of that genre. You know, it's like Randy Travis is the cornerstone upon which and and the other guys i submitted you are also the other voices that I love so much. But Randy is really, you know, he's the he's he's the voice of country music and and like there's and I'd have been so lucky to have gotten a Randy Travis cut in my life. I can't even believe that I can say that. But that's not why I put that record forward. It's just anything he sings is is wonderful and lovely and, and, um, and worth listening to his style is, um, it is country music. His style is country music.
3: I set out season's greetings to all our same old friends. The tree is trimmed down in your favorite place. Deck the halls with holly Build a snowman in the lane I sing jingle bells and a one-horse open sleigh But white Christmas may. Every time I hear it play I think of you.
0: Yeah, I was thinking when I was listening to it that it made so much sense. Um, that you know he would make First off, yeah, I mean, you're right, and that he would make a he would make a Christmas record made so much sense because you know one of the things I love about Randy Travis is you hear the voice and you know who he is, Absolutely. that, that, you know, he is, you know, the, you know, the, he is the family man that there is a, you know, a, a stoic quality, you know, there's an entire sort of worldview, you know, you know, you know, you know what he was taught growing up. And so it all feels very complete when you hear, you hear three minutes of a song and you feel like you know 20 years of his life in the process. and That's well said. I, I think the stuff is really awesome. And, and I got to say, but I don't know what your favorite was on it. Um, one I picked that I wanted us to talk about was uh, White Christmas Makes Me Blue, which does a handful of things like, one of which is I like that it, it reminds it, – it's not a joke song, but it reminds you that Randy Tra- that Randy Travis know- you know he knows jokes and that he can you know he knows how to he knows how to modulate. He can play light, he can play heavy. And this has solid emotional notes, but it also it's he's not overworking it. It's a song about songs. And that's got to be up your alley.
6: Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. And, uh, I think, you know, everything you, everything you said there, he's not known for being very, uh, light and humorous, but you can find the songs, you know, um, he's got that threaded throughout his career. It's a, it's a small thread that runs through it, you know, forever and ever. Amen. Right. You know, um, that that's a funny song. You remember the lyric, you know, as long as old women sit and talk about old men. Right. You know, right. (laughs) Um, yeah no Rand- I, I just think Randy played, he plays the whole spectrum he can, he, he can go you know across the board in any in any kind of tone or theme uh, and he has and uh, I like the more traditional songs that he that he wraps his voice around the, 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 the carols that we already know sure but, um, I was looking at the at the writers on that song um, I don't know these writers and I'd love to know how they found this song because these are these are it's obviously a new song. It was written by Clarence Grissom and Neil Rogers, neither of which I've ever heard of. And uh, you know, but that's 1989. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Not what I've heard of.
0: Right, right. Who knows? So, have you ever uh, written songs about songs?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, I've written. I, I don't know if I've written songs about songs. I've written songs about songwriting, um, indirectly, indirectly, um, and I've used song titles. In a song, I had a song, strangely enough, called "Damn Straight," which is the name of the current Scotty McCreary single, but I wrote it about 15 years ago, um, and we used a lot of Straight's titles in there. So I've done that, but all you know, I've learned for my money, it's a little insider baseball for the mainstream audience, which I try to focus on delivering to these delivering to the market. You know, songs that can be. Um, widely popular at radio and and sometimes a song about songs and stuff like that is a little bit too niche i think um but you know it for for me writing is always uh hinges on that that title and that idea so you know i mean we came up we had a great title that that concerned a song or songs whatever i'm game you know i just i love writing good ideas i love writing great ideas
0: yeah you know the uh, nice correction there
6: the reason yeah, I ask. Good ideas. <laughs> but, no, I got a buddy who says good ideas make good songs and great ideas make great songs. And I can't do anything with good songs.
0: Right. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because uh, I feel the same way. Uh, I always sort of, in the abstract, admire writing songs about songs, but they usually end up feeling somehow corny. Uh, or, or, they, or they have to work too hard to get the reference in, um, which is part of what, so yeah. part of me just loves the craft of this song too because it doesn't feel strained, uh, that the, the thought seems natural. The thought also is, I mean, admittedly, it's, it's part of a sort of country tradition that doesn't really, that sort of, that kind of title doesn't happen like it used to that kind of clever title, that kind of turn like that, that's not where country is anymore. That now has become kind of a a cliche, you know, brought up by people who don't listen to country anymore.
6: Yeah. Although, I mean, like in general, I'm starting to see the appreciation for a clever turn um, in the lyric grow among artists and, uh, and people in country music. It seems like we're writing more of those songs. And that more of them are
0: getting cut these days, so there may be a little bit of a
6: groundswell coming back.
0: Oh, cool. Well, yeah, I hope so. You also picked uh, Alan Jackson, and uh, that you need to explain Alan Jackson to me because I, Cat, my wife, loves Alan Jackson as well, and so I've got his '93 Christmas album, Honky Tonk Christmas,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and I like it, but I have to say, Alan Jackson is kind of a Uh, a blind spot for me. Uh, like I can tell you who Randy Travis is. I understand Randy Travis. When I hear Randy Travis's voice, I don't have the same thing happen for me when I hear Alan Jackson, or maybe I do. And I just look straight past it. So tell me, (laughs) help me understand Randy, uh, Alan Jackson.
6: So the, the thing you need to know about Alan Jackson is that he is a triple threat. He can sing, he can play and he can write. So Randy Travis is not a songwriter. Randy Travis is, the, is one of the great interpreters of songs. Alan has written almost all of his catalog by himself. Wow. So you need to look, across, look at that through the lens of like a Dolly Parton, who's also done the same thing. Um, when you do that and you go at bat alone and you're swinging for the fence every time, you're going to miss. Because you can't beat the town, is what I always say. Randy, every time he goes to make a record, has the whole town to supply him with a drawer songs. Alan is coming with what he wrote that year. And for a guy to be doing it like that and still have the success rate that Alan's had with greatness, writing and singing greatness, um, is amazing. But I think if you want to see Alan at his best as an interpreter, the album Under the Influence, which has a sublime cover of Hank Williams Jr.'s blues man, utterly sublime cover of that song. You'll see what a great singer Alan is put aside the writing. He's got the town at his, ha- at his fingertips and he's chosen beautiful songs for that album.
0: Interesting. Um,
6: he's, I just think he's one of the great voices of country music. And, uh, while we're on him, there's a great documentary out there on the streaming services about him and, uh, and about Tim Dubois, who kind of brought him to town and really signed him to his, to his, to his record deal when he was younger. Um, I just think he's great, you know. And I think, um, as I've grown as a songwriter and 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 as a person and as a dad, I've realized like how unbelievably lucky we were that he was the guy who got out in front after nine eleven with his song "Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning." You know, I think the further away from that I get, the more I realize like how well done that was because, Lord knows, we saw a bunch of ham-fisted attempts. When the pandemic shut us all down, right? It's just like, yeah. oh my God, where's Alan? Yeah, like, ah, you know, that's, ah, what, that's ah, what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> but great. I really, I really think he, I think he's a master craftsman and a great singer. And um, and you know, I got a lot of respect for his style. You know, he's never really wavered. He's never tried to chase trends. Um, you know, if you go see him on a uh, on stage performing, you know, he probably gives George Strait a run for his money for the for the for the most um. What would you say, statuesque performer in country music, right? <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, again, both of those great, great singers, great, yeah. you know, great entertainers, great connectors.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing I hear in Alan Jackson, and I'm trying to, you know, is, and again, i sort of, it, he feels like anybody, um, which is both on one hand, it's sort of an absence to me. I don't, I don't hear a distinct personality i don't hear a a history a life led coming through that voice but on the other hand i recognize that that absence makes it easy for a lot of people to map their lives onto his that's songs
6: right. that's right yeah um yeah it's a double edged sword obviously but i think i think the the, the 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 benefits outweigh the the um the the debits on that you know i think he, I think country music audiences want to see themselves reflected back in the artists that they go see, and I think if you if you measure Alan by that, uh, he does it perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure country music's audiences are alone in that, but but they but yeah. they definitely are. Yeah. So
6: no, I, I don't think they are. It's just the audience I live among.
0: Sure, I'm right? sorry. Yeah. I, I hear you. So I gonna mean, that we'll go to we'll go to a song here from Alan Jackson's Honky Tonk Christmas. This is his first Christmas album, I think, uh, 1993. Um, and that, we'll come back on the flip. This is Santa, uh, Santa's gonna come in a pickup truck. And there's a lot to talk about when we get on the backside of this.
5: Hey guys,
6: what's the problem? The weather. What do you mean? It's warm and beautiful outside.
3: Exactly. No snow, no Santa which means I've been good all year for nothing. This is gonna be a miserable
1: Christmas.
6: Well, maybe not, fellas.
3: Well, I've been sort of worried about Santa Claus this year. You're worried? My life's riding on this delivery. Cause we live away down south, and it didn't snow down here, but I'm telling you not to worry, cause I just got the word. Everybody listen closely, and I'll tell you what I
1: heard.
3: Santa's coming in a pickup instead of his trusty sleigh. He'll have a truck
0: instead. I had to say my when I, I saw that it had a guest spot by Alvin and the Chipmunks, that made me cringe uh, because it almost all that first off promised to be far too cute, and and my assumption was that can't be Ross from Ross Bagdasarian who created Alvin and the Chipmunks because he's dead. I discovered that in fact. That is that that those the album The Chipmunks' contribution came from Ross Bagdasarian Jr., his son, who who now is the inheritor and the maintainer of the album The Chipmunks' legacy.
6: Of course, of course, right?
0: (laughs) So that's great. So I have to say I picked this song partly because it is better than I expected. That it is a judicious use of the Albert and the Chipmunks, and it's still fundamentally a Randy Travis—I mean, or a uh, still fundamentally an Alan Jackson song—and that is, where's where's Alan Jackson from? Is he from Florida? Do I remember this, or where's he from? Do you?
6: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Like Jacksonville, maybe.
0: That that's where I was. That's what I had in mind, and it seemed like yes, a that a you know a Florida Christmas song is Santa and a pickup. And so it was like it felt on brand. I was entertained by it. It wasn't overly cu- it wasn't overly cute. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I I got to say I'm there. Um it also made me think of something. Um you know, obviously it flirts with novelty if it's not just a straight out novelty song by putting album the chipmunks there. And I was thinking, to some extent, Casey Musgrave's song is also kind of easy to hear as a novelty song. Um, mm-hmm. That is as much about that because I mean, the song is as much flirting with talking about weed as it is about Christmas. Um, right. And have you have is there any place for novelty in uh, in uh, country music these days? Have you ever written um, a novelty song?
6: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I think, like, um, Blake Shelton and Tim McGraw do it very well. You know, I'm thinking of two songs. Blake had a song called Some Beach. And he's trying, you know, it opens up where he's trying to pull into a parking lot. And some guy's got to, you know, zips in to the parking space before he does. And he's like, some beach. You know, <laughs> I wish I was like, like, like some beach. I wish I was away, you know, drinking a margarita. Like, why am I, why am I even fighting with this Walmart parking lot? So, you know, it's like this, it's a clever, it's an and possibly a novelty song. Tim's got one that I love called, do you want fries with that? And it's a guy working at a, at a fast food drive through and his ex-wife's new boyfriend is coming through driving like, you know, a nice car. And um, she's getting paid all his alimony and he's trying to pay it off working at Burger King or whatever. The guy's like, Do you want fries with that? Like like you got everything <laughs> from me, you know? And, um I think and I think Blake and Tim, you know, but I think there are other guys, Rodney uh Adkins can pull it off sometimes. And then there are guys that don't do it at all. You know, certain certain artists seem to s- just stay away from anything clever funny or clever or novelty completely. Yeah. It doesn't fit doesn't fit their brand. I think maybe too, you know, that the genre has moved largely away from um Stepping into character and, and things that would allow for a novelty song. Um, I think across the board, music has become obsessed with, you know, the autobiographical dominating the lyric rather than a great lyric and the, and the, and the singer stepping in.
0: Sure. how's that work for you? Having as somebody who works with the writer or, or I mean, in mm-hmm. some cases works with the yeah. artist, in some cases not when auto, when autobiography becomes more of a sort of an underpinning of the, of the music and of the sort of the, the, the yep. contemporary aesthetic, how does that work for somebody who's well, I mean, you know, it, working it in the mind? Well, I mean,
6: it fine if you're writing with the artist, right? Because you can kind of mine their autobiography and their background and what they're going through for the lyric. Um, Brantley Gilbert was a, a great example of that. You know, that song was written... Almost verbatim, um, uh, you know, in, in in relation to a situation that he was discussing with a friend of his. Um, I think if you're not, if you're writing, if,
0: what was that brandy? What was the what was the brandy? Uh, so you don't know her me? like
6: I do. Um, but I think if you're not writing for the artist, I mean, if you're not writing with the artist in the room with you, and you're writing, you know, there's three pure songwriters in the room writing. Our task is is perhaps uh, a a little easier, but at the same time, a little trickier, because we have to construct something that is both particular and specific enough that it's got some great, you know, tasty lines in it. uh, And at the same time, um, general enough that it might apply to say a third of the possible artists recording in country music today. Right. So, um, you you know, you're, you're you're walking to the line if you're just in the room writing a song with just pure songwriters and we don't have the artist in there we're we're not quite we're not quite inviting the artist sure. in but we all have a pretty good idea of what the market is looking for and who's who these guys are you know so uh, it's funny how you internalize all that stuff you don't really have to have a conversation about it you know with with other professional songwriters you, you just know
0: yeah we'll wrap up here with one more And all the cringes that I stored up when I saw Chipmunks run an Alan Jackson track were realized when I heard Conway Twitty's A Twistmas Story. Conway Twitty with Twitty Bird and their little friends in
6: 1994. How could they not do it? I mean, and that's what I love about it. It's just like it was faded. And it was always faded. And I mean, first of all, Conway yeah. Twitty is one of the great voices of all music. Period, um, and uh, yeah, and, and so I wanted to just highlight his, you know him and, and that great voice of his. But yeah, I also think like it. I mean, it's hilarious that uh, that they didn't make this record almost you know at the very beginning of Conway's career. Um, it's Twitty and Twitty.
0: Well, you know, the thing I th- I was thinking about this was '94. It's one of those. It struck me when I was listening to it as thinking, you know, how long had it been since Twitty had been on the charts uh, in '94? It had probably been at least fifteen, if not twenty years, since he had probably charted. And so, at that point in his, you know, in his career, there, it it, it feels like. You kind of guessing the behind the scenes. What can I sell? And you can always you can try to sell Christmas. And if you try to sell Christmas to kids, that's an easier sell. And so that you end up mom and dad who love Conway Twitty, that uh, that they'll they'll sign on. Or 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 you know in '94, there's a good chance it might have been grandma. Uh, or grandpa, but anyway, but somebody in the family <laughs> who loved Conway Twitty pulls this out and figures, you know, I'll like this and the kids will, uh, the kids will like this. And so you're going to hear that yeah. math, uh, in the back. And, and, and it's a, it's a, something I, I do love about a lot of Christmas music is that in a lot of ways, the market considerations yeah. are abundantly clear, um, you know, it's funny, you know, you're in Nashville or you work in Nashville. I know you live here in New Orleans as well, but you're working in Nashville and Nashville, my brief experience there, and I, you could probably tell me otherwise is that the yeah. business is pretty clear that the business is pretty cutthroat, but the business is pretty clear. People don't dance a lot around trying to put a cute face on otherwise a pretty cutthroat idea. Um, when oh. you're doing business. And whereas in, whereas the pop industry tends to like to pretend that everything is more organic than it really is. Am I, am I Um, right on that?
6: Yeah, but it's like, I think that there's a, you know, it's not knives out at all. Music row still for better and worse is a very Southern kind of place. And there's a lot of manners and decorum that's insisted upon implicitly, you know, in the business, in country music, it's, it's very, um, the business of our music is right there at the surface, you know, like all of us can cite the chart numbers that we've had and the amount of sales we've had, uh, across the board, whether you're a songwriter, an artist, a manager, like, like none of us are shying away from, um, measuring things according to, uh, business yardsticks. Um, but that being said, you know, once you, once you get that up and kind of on the table, you're really free to enjoy yourself without having to get crafty or, you know, there's certain like, you know, the possibility of skullduggery is almost gone once, once you've got like, okay, no, that's who we are. We're all fighting for the numbers here. What's the great idea you got? Do you have a great song? You know?
0: I think that's really interesting though. That idea that, you know, basically you lead with the backside of your baseball card. Um, and that's yeah. up front. That's a part of the business, and the uh, and, and and part of the process in a way that, you know, I, I would love to have people from you know from the pop pop markets tell me otherwise. is I, as I, but the certainly the illusion is that there they attempt to try to make it all look more organic than country tries, and so anyway. So, in the case of this, you can like you look at a record like like you know like Conway's uh, Conway Twitty's you know a Twistmas story, and you know you can sort of like how would this happen? Well, in the height of his career, it wouldn't have happened. At the height of his career, if he did a Christmas album, it would have been like a Randy Travis Christmas, like an Alan Jackson Christmas. It would have been. Con, it'd have been like a George Jones Christmas. It would have been Conway standing out, giving you ten or eleven beautifully sang songs. He'd have given you a couple of uh, a couple of spirit two or three spirituals in there to show you he's a he's a good God fearing man. There'd be a couple of fun songs to show you he's a dad. There'd be a couple of uh, a couple of classics, and because uh, he appreciates the classics, and he'd have written one or or had one or two originals because he's an original artist and you could you could you know map it all out and it would have been right. would have been beautifully performed would have been professionally made I personally would love to have heard it but at the time that's not for whatever reason where he was and so in 1994 we get a Twistmas story and it, some of it. Did you listen to this?
6: I'm more <laughs> impressed with the I'm more impressed with the event of the album than I am with the album itself, right? I I and, and it's kind of the same yes. point you're making. Um, and yeah, this is kind of the Branson, Missouri album that you know was made here. Um, yeah, and and yes. and, I, and I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, I mean, I love the the, the straddling between childhood. And adulthood that Christmas music gets lets us do right, but whether it's Frosty the Snowman or Reindeer, all of that like, it's it is wonderful that they that, that you know you can put on a record and both Grandma and your six year old are loving that record kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we'll tell you what, Jim. Back at you. This has been excellent. You too. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you again. We will. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk some more about Christmas music uh, soon and we will go out now with a louisiana twist of course of course conway twitty twitty bird christmas where are we going to go but louisiana right. for johnny Take snowman Thanks, buddy. i'll talk to you talk to you later
3: A week just before Christmas, way down in Louisiana, a little boy was kneeling by his bed, and the manor poised and grand. I listened as he said his prayers. His voice came soft and low. He said, go tell St. Nicholas to send a little snow. Please send some snow, some snow for Johnny. Finally, snowman.
0: earlier this year, I interviewed young country singer Bailey James, who's in the process of finding her audience. I was interested in how prominent a place Christmas music has played in her career to this point, and how it was clearly part of a strategy to help potential fans discover her. We'll start with her song from earlier this year, Finally Free, then talk to Bailey James on the other side. I
1: was so terrified Too scared to say goodbye I didn't ever want to be alone So I let you run my life To keep you from running out Wish you would have let me go a long time ago
0: So, Bailey, uh, tell me the short version of your story. Where are you from? How did we get to here in a minute or so?
7: Yeah, um, I am originally from Philly. Um, Well, not Philly. I like to say Philly because no one knows any other place in
1: Pennsylvania. Um,
7: But I'm about an hour from Philly, a little small town. And I grew up on old school country music. So Johnny Cash, uh, Patsy Cline, Hank, George. That's what my family played around the house or my dad, really. Um, And that's where my love for country music grew. I made a little EP when I was 11 that had Crazy by Patsy Cline, Blue by Leanne Rimes, and an opera song because I'm operatically trained. Um, And I brought it down to Nashville and we just started giving it to anybody who would listen. And um, from there, we kind of built a team. And for about two to three years, we would travel from PA to Nashville about every other month, um, just working on building me, building my brand with songs. Um, I had a single... Chart 36 on Music Row called Run Girl. That was my first single out. And um, then we moved to Nashville when I was about 15, 16. And I was still doing country, uh, but I was starting to listen to new artists. I was listening to Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain and um, probably artists my mom wouldn't want me to listen to. (laughs) But um, that's where my music taste started to change a little bit and I started to write more music, um, that was more emotional and a little less country. And so now I'm kind of doing a mix of everything, just whatever I feel.
0: Cool. I have to tell you, I'm sure, I'm sure you run into this and recognize this, but I have to say, I found that the hustle was more intense in Nashville than even in Los Angeles. Um, I I I, go ahead.
7: I could agree with that. I mean, I've only been to LA one time. It was for American idol. And I, that week was like, that week was so rough. Um, but Nashville is very to heart town to be in for music.
0: All right. I'm going to come back to Nashville, but you got to tell me about the American idol story. Well, tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah.
7: Um, I went to American idol when I was 15. I was super young. Uh, and it had just been a hard year. You know, my dad had lost his job. My um, <clears throat> brother had passed. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was just like, I'm going to go to American Idol. I'm going to try out, do my best. Um, and I was still singing country at the time. So I auditioned with I Put a Spell on You and a song I wrote for my brother called The One. And the funny thing was that Lionel and Katie absolutely like loved me. They said, you should be singing more soul and blues music. That's where your voice is. Um, But Luke didn't. And so I got Uh, two yeses, one no. And there started my, like, resentment towards Luke. (laughs)
1: Um,
7: Yeah. So I went to Hollywood Week. It was intense. Like, when they say Hollywood Week is intense, it's really intense. Uh, I got through the first round, or I didn't get through the first round. I got to the first round. And basically we were there for about like two days. Uh, I sang Your Cheating Heart by Patsy Cline and they said I wasn't ready and I wasn't ready. Now, like looking back, I was not ready at all. So I'm grateful for the opportunity um, because it kind of steered me towards the music I love making the most.
0: Now, when you were in Pennsylvania and you were growing up listening to country, was anyone around you listening to country besides your family, or was or was was this a, was it was was it a rural thing, or was this a your family specific thing?
7: I think it was my family. Um, my dad's originally from Texas, and he his family that's what he grew up on. So I don't know if he was trying to get me to listen to that kind of music, but we would be in the car. I would be like six at the time. I would be draw. We would, I don't know, like ballet lessons or something, and he would be singing "Walk the Line" or "Folsom Prison Blues." And eventually, I heard it so much, I would start singing it with him. I didn't know who it was, but I knew that I liked the lyrics and I liked the rhythm. And um, it was more my family because I got I got made fun of a lot in school for singing country music, and especially the kind of country I was singing in the beginning. Um, and everyone would be like. You know, it's like Hank Williams, or the, there was this time in the school um, where a teacher asked us to choose between Hank Williams and the Beatles, and everyone like chose the Beatles, and I was like, "Oh, Hank!"
0: So.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, that's great. <laughs> when you said that, you know, obviously you went when you when you auditioned on uh, on American Idol. When you were performing there, you were doing classic country. Was there a moment when kind of as a singer or as an artist, when you realized that song is like, you know, 30 or 40 years older than I am? Uh, Like, what am I, you know, was like, does this, how does it speak to my life?
7: Um, I've always, I don't know. I've always, that music has always spoke to me. Even when I was, like, 11, I was like, oh, I totally understand how Patsy <laughs> Klein feels when she's singing that. I don't know. I think um, I'm an old soul, maybe. The newer music, like, I can, you know, get down to and I can have fun. But that music really speaks to me. Um, I didn't realize it till I was singing Lead Belly's song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night. That song is extremely old. And I was like, this is weird. I'm so young singing this old song, so I have to, you know, really get in the moment and pay the respects to it.
0: Right. So when you're singing a song, and this may seem obvious, but since I'm not a singer, I have to have to actually ask it. To what extent do the lyrics drive the performance?
7: Um, they can. It depends on the song, I think. I'm a very a motive singer. So more than anything, if I'm not in the moment, then it's not going to be as good as when I am. Um, But I mean, bad lyrics will always sound like bad lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) I think the lyrics are probably very important. Um, That's why I love, you know, the weird artists like Amy and Kurt. And um, I love Janice. Mm. They, really they were all songwriters. Well, I don't know if Janice was, but Amy and Kurt were. Um and they really took the time to make lyrics that resonated in their lives and right. that they were proud of.
0: Yeah. I mean I think and and I I mean I think it's you know obviously even in your songs, it's clear you bring something specific to a song because of what the song's about. Um but yeah. I've also but I've heard songs and singers Where it's very clear that kind of the melody, the music, the energy of the music, that is dictating the performance as much, if not more, than the contents. Like, I've, you know, we've heard, Mm -hmm. you know, we've both heard people singing heartbreak songs that (laughs) sound like they just got a popsicle from the truck outside. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
7: (laughs) And that's what I tried to steer away from. When I started, I wasn't writing my own music. So, most of that music back then, yeah, that's kind of how it feels. The music was really driving it. But as I got older and I went through more and, you know, just grew, uh, I started writing my own music and that completely changed everything.
0: Mm. You know, one of the things that struck me about your sound. Is that it is that although it's clear you listen to a lot of genres, that it also is clear you like country music and that you can't there's twang in there, there is lap steel in there or there are sli- or there's slide guitars in there. Why stick closer to that traditional sound when the charts say that the money's not in, uh, in twanginess right now?
7: Um. Because I don't agree with the charts.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
7: I don't agree with the charts. I I have a love-hate relationship with country radio. Um well I love country I like, don't don't look at me like that, dad. <laughs> He's looking at me like, why'd you say that? <laughs> um I think that there is still a lot of room in country music. I listen I listen to Culture Wall. I listen to Tyler Childers, I listen to those artists that really are big on the lyrics, big on, you know, old country music. Still, I there's still room for it, and there's still people who really appreciate it. Um, whether or not business aspect they appreciate it, well, sure, that's not what I'm going for. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I get that entirely, and it is, you know, that I think you know one of the most important ideas is you know be you know be who you are so that if people buy in at some point you know they're buying that whatever they're buying into is is fully established and it's you know it's you and you're not in the process of chasing whatever whatever's hot now Mm -hmm. so
7: i i um i'm at the point where you know i'm releasing music that i'm really proud of and if country radio loves that then i love you country radio um but I also just want to make music that I'm proud of.
0: Sure. Yeah. Now, th- In the, this year, or kind of in the last year, you have released "Swore I Was Over It," "Bitter," <laughs> "Over You," and "Finally Free." Were you working yeah. something out?
7: <laughs> Honestly, didn't we we've released we released two collaborations, right? What was it, "Whiskey Rain" and?
5: Dead Man Walking.
7: Dead Man Walking. I'm also in a girl group. Cool. So, um, no. I just wrote so much last year because we all we could do was kind of write. I mean, what was I going to do? Right. Like, I wasn't one who got, well, I do get stir crazy. I can't just like sit around and I got too many things going on in my mind at once. So I would write and I would write and I would write. Um, and we plan to release a lot of singles this year. I think that's actually one of my dad's favorite things like that. We've released so many singles this year. He loves talking about it. He's like, we've released this many songs. It's amazing though. Um, we didn't have any plan. We just had a lot of music that we were proud of that we have been holding on to for a long time. And we were like, why not?
0: Sure. Actually, I got to say, I'm a firm believer in, I'm a firm believer in singles these days. And yeah. Because you know, that the word, and now in the, in an era of social media and streaming that yeah. the idea of putting out an album and then coming back a year later or you know, with another album, it's like, there's 11 months in there for people to think about somebody other than you. And <laughs> yeah. the, and the idea of trickling out songs over the course of, you know, three, four five months, that seems perfectly reasonable and far more likely to build audience and and keep the songs where they're where they're exciting. I mean, I you can you probably know this or this, or you can tell me how this is for you, but I know I've talked to artists for whom the excitement is the moment when you think of the song and you finally kind of realize, I know what this song is. And the idea of finding the song, figuring it out and recording it 11 months later is so far past the moment of excitement.
7: Yeah. I've I've kind of gotten used to that. Well, I don't know. I think, yeah, when you're recording it and you have to keep talking about it, you kind of just get in the cycle. But as soon as I get on stage, it's like a new song to me. Um, so I think I hold out just so I can, you know, sing the songs on stage and be able to show my emotions to people.
0: Right. So what did you do with your uh, with your Corona uh, Corona time?
7: Well, I got Corona.
0: Oh, did you really? <laughs> oh, man. Okay.
7: No, I'm, I, I went out to play my first show, Puckett's um, in Leapers Fork, Tennessee, one of my favorite venues where I met my band. Um, and we, no one was wearing masks. It's Tennessee. We're just all a bunch of hillbillies. So, like, <laughs> Nobody was wearing masks and we were like, we're going to be fine. About three days later, can't smell bleach, can't smell anything. Wow. So me and dad were down with COVID for about a week and a half and it was Thanksgiving, which sucks because like you're, you can't even taste the food. So um, that, that happened, but it was a really amazing time for me. Uh, I love being able to sit down and really write and have that time. And I felt like before then, I had just not had enough time to make music I was super proud of. So writing and music-wise, it was amazing. It was a really good time for me.
0: Aside from COVID.
7: Aside from COVID and everything going on in the world, I was like just blah. I was in La La Land. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that had to be, I mean, I, it's been interesting. I talked to a number of musicians who, 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 who recorded Uh, Like recorded their Christmas projects during, uh, during COVID and, you know, talking about it as really an existential uh, sort of crisis, because like I, I make music. What am I, if I'm not making music?
7: Yeah, basically, basically, (laughs) I mean, I, that's why I kept writing. If I hadn't been writing, I wouldn't, I think I would have gone crazy.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so did you record songs during that, during that time?
7: Yeah. Um, more when it had all kind of died down a little bit. Um, I recorded all of, about what? Six, seven, six, seven songs during COVID. Okay. Um, and, they were all songs I had written. So it was, it was fun, but it was also like, you know, it's still COVID.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did y'all take precautions that this was after, this was after you had, had been infected at, had, uh, had caught it or no?
7: Yeah, this was afterwards. Okay. Um, and so i I mean, we didn't get, I think we did get checked for the antibodies and we still had them like up to uh, three to four months after. Um, So that was about the time that we had gone in and went into the studio and started to make new music. And I started to, you know, get excited again because I was like, maybe we're going to be able to make music again and go out and tour. And I just did a show last week, like one of my first shows back and I'm rusty. I'm definitely rusty. I'm definitely got to do a few more shifts to get back in
0: the groove so. how, how does that manifest
7: um what do you mean in what
0: way I mean I mean I've talked to I've talked to musicians here who talk about you know talk about being rusty and in the audience from the audience side you don't hear it or I'm not mm-hmm. and I'm like okay what did you hear or what did you feel that the audience isn't necessarily connecting to that I think
7: I think it's more like um, a mental thing. Uh, I definitely have always gotten nervous before, before, before. I'm just a nervous person in general. Um, and if I'm not nervous, then I don't care. So uh, that's more what's, what happened. I had like a full-blown little panic attack. And then I was like, okay, I'm fine. Let's go. And <laughs> so that's just me being nervous um, from not
5: performing.
0: Right. Does it, can you turn it on? Can you get in front of the stand and have your sort of voice at sort of full power and.
7: Oh yeah. Bailey James is much different than normal Bailey. Ah, Let ah. me tell you that. Yes. Um, I've, it's just a natural thing I've always been able to do so I can turn it on and then turn it off automatically when I get off stage. Right. Ah. Um, And my parents have to deal with that, so it's funny.
0: In addition to all these songs, you've also, in the last few years, you've released uh, a couple of Christmas songs. You released your own version, uh, Please Come Home for Christmas, and you wrote your own Christmas song, uh, But It Snows. Um, But if it snows, I'm sorry. So, first off, what's your relationship to Christmas music?
7: I love, well, I love Christmas music. When I'm sad, I listen to Christmas music. When I, when I want it to be Christmas sooner, I listen to Christmas music, um, it's just, it's always been one of, like, my little happy places, Christmas music. And um, I have all these amazing memories. Like, when we decorate our trees, well, back in PA, our real trees. Here are our fake trees because
5: it's Tennessee.
7: Um, we would always put on, like, really classic songs. And it's just one of my favorite moments.
0: What... What are the Christmas songs What What are the Christmas songs you really remember from growing up?
7: Well, please come home for Christmas. That's one of my favorites. My mom, she likes that '80s version though. You like the one with the girl who sings all the high notes, right? I forget her name, uh-huh. but um, what is it, Vince? That's Vin- a different song. Yeah, I don't. It's one of those. It's an '80s song. Um, but I remember that one. The really um, my dad loved like the stupid Christmas songs. So like the donkey one and like Feliz Navidad and like <laughs> and I remember he loved those ones and my mom loved the more serious ones. So they would like get annoyed with each other in the car during Christmas
3: time.
7: <laughs> and mom would be like, turn this song out. <laughs>
0: um
7: and I just have like amazing memories towards a lot of different
0: songs. No, that's great the uh was there a a record that was an important part of your uh, like your christmas traditions
7: well my um grandma loves elvis i mean both my grandmas loved elvis uh and the one song what is it blue christmas when my grandpa was in the army um and she and he wasn't home she would listen to it she said she would listen to it all Christmas and she would cry and so that one has kind of been like a super important one in my family I'm super close with my grandma and so me and her um even when it's not Christmas we'll sing that song together just because I think it brings back like those memories for her
0: oh that's great nope yeah tell me about tell me about writing a Christmas song How do you do that?
7: I, well, it wasn't planned. I actually wrote it in the middle of the summer. Um, As most people do write their Christmas songs in the middle of the summer. But I just wanted, I wanted to write a Christmas song. um, That was my own. And I sat down one night and I just started playing the guitar. um, And just started writing a kind of the first lines to But If It Snows. And it kind of came together and I brought it into a right. Cause I, at that time I couldn't write a full song by myself. I could get kind of the ideas and the themes and they wanted to make it more classic Christmas. And I was like, that's great. I love that. Um, and that's where it came together.
0: Now tell me about, about this experience, about rights who were writing? You? Yeah, Ooh. I mean, we're, I mean we're I mean no, I mean you tell you took it to people. Is it like you and another songwriter or was it like you and a handful of other like you had a few people who sort of like batted around or tell me about this experience. Um,
7: I met a lot of songwriters just from researching, you know, Nashville songwriters when I was younger, and then I would build those relationships. They would introduce me to new songwriters. And really, it was just kind of building those relationships, meeting different people. There's been a few times where I met a songwriter, and I like fell in love with the way they wrote the songs. Um, and I was like, I'm keeping you. You're not leaving. Uh, We're going uh, to write uh, all the time. Uh, uh. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's definitely – it's different. You meet every songwriter in a different way.
0: Sure. So when you sat down with um, with, with this, with But If It Snows – What did you have already?
7: I had uh, the verse, lights line the walls, presents fill the rooms, but I don't care at all. I'm not even the Christmas mood. I had the the whole verse, um, but none of the chorus. And I didn't know where it was going. I just knew that I wanted to write something happy. And that had, you know, um, well, not that happy, but... (laughs) (laughs) it's still it's still a ballad it's still a ballad but something that made me happy and at that time i was writing a christmas song
0: is it harder to write happy songs
7: yes oh my gosh yes my mom gets so annoyed with me she's like bailey people are gonna start thinking like you are depressed or something because you only write sad songs i said that's the emotion that's easiest to write about when I try to write a happy song, I'm like, mm, this is lame. I want those songs that like tear at your heart. And, you know. That's why I love Amy Winehouse. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, one of the things I think is really interesting and I think instructive is that, you know, I, I've thought about this question and thought about just, you know, when you think about trying to express ter- negative terms, if you want to talk about, you know, how you don't like something we can be incredibly precise and we can mm-hmm. be I loathe something, I detest, I can't stand, you know, I hate, I you know whatever. But when we talk about happiness, we I like it, I really <laughs> like it, I love it. And that's kind of we don't have a door, but that's like how you feel about like, you know, how how your grandmother feels about her dog or something. But it's you yeah. know there are so there's so little language to express positive emotions and we are so precise and there are so many words to totally break down all the negative words that i always think it's probably easier to write negative and you know and it's easier you know as for critics often to bust on things because you can be so exact in what you're going for whereas trying to be positive you're trying to figure out how to nuance two or three words into the places that you really want to go that's my theory
7: I agree with that. And I think that my generation, we just love to be negative.
2: <laughs>
0: I don't know what it is,
7: um, but all of us, I, you know, we all hopped on the Billie Eilish uh, train and that, you know, she also has that really sad, really emotional music. I don't know. I think we have to learn how to look for the positive <laughs> in things. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but maybe that's my goal to write a happy song.
0: It's a good goal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so when you, so when you started, so when you started trying to figure out, but if it snows, you know, I, I know I've talked to people and one of the challenges is always, you know, how do you, one of the challenges is how do you write a Christmas song that's going to fit kind of with Christmas? And yeah. I guess, you know, was that a thought at all? Like, can I write something that makes sense as a Christmas song? Or were you just literally, let's figure out how to nail what I've got right here?
7: Um, I think a little bit of both. Definitely the writers were trying to figure out how to write a Christmas song. And I was just like, I just want to love this song.
3: Because
7: <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the artist who never, well, as the artist i never think about the business standpoint of it i always think about you know the writing and the emotion and so it was a little bit of both um and they had the idea for the course the course is what really sells the song and so i'm grateful for
5: that
1: but-
0: You also covered Please Come Home for Christmas.
1: hmm
0: Tell me about, tell me about how you, first off, so you, that was a song that obviously you, you've got a long time history with. Tell me about trying to figure out how to, how to record that song and how to make that song yours.
7: Uh, well, it naturally, when I listened to the Eagles recording, had, you know, like a bluesy, um, soulful aspect to it. I just wanted to pull that out more. So, I I don't listen to it and think about how I'm gonna sing it. I just go and I sing it, and wherever it goes, well, that's my way of
2: singing it. Right. So
7: um, I had no real plan, and actually, I went into the studio and just kind of did my thing and emoted to it the way I knew how. And so I I love I still love my recording of it. I'm still really proud of it.
0: Oh, good. So I want to back up because I, I make sure I didn't miss this. So, the Eagles version was kind of your reference point when you were working on yours yes. okay
7: yes um that that's my favorite version, and something about it just spoke to me, and I was like okay i wanna I wanna sing it in my own way
0: oh cool the uh no as I said, as we I we said earlier here, you've got a hand you've got now I think around eight or nine songs that you've released, yeah, and of those you know, you have two Christmas songs. So as you're in the process as a young artist of introducing yourself to the world, you have made Christmas sort of a a meaningful part of that. Sort of a basic question, why do that?
7: Well, Christmas is my favorite holiday. It's an important holiday in my family, not just because of the presents and stuff, but like um, that's our holiday when we all can get together. And I've had so many like, just amazing memories. Um, I want to be able to kind of share that with other people. I want people to feel that way about Christmas because that's how I feel. I look forward to it every year. Um, and so I'm just kind of trying to share my life experiences, my memories through my songs.
0: I would also wonder as a, as an artist who's in the process of trying to be heard and you know, there's cause there's somebody, there's so many people out there. Does doing a Christmas song also create opportunities for you? Chances for you to be heard that you might not otherwise have?
7: Yeah. um, There's so many Christmas movies coming out every year and they're always looking for songs. Um, I sang, but if it snows, I did a cover of that that got like a couple thousand views on Facebook. People just um, love the, the feelings that Christmas brings, even when it's not Christmas, if you can listen to a Christmas song and feel that just happiness, right? That's what matters, and yeah. I think that's what brings us all together through right. Christmas.
0: Thanks to Bailey, Jim, Alexandra, and Mitchell for the time and the talk. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music. Thanks to car-floats.com for the sponsorship. And thanks to you for not only listening today, but this year. This has been the biggest year for 12 songs yet, and you helped make it so. If you haven't already done so, write me at alex@myspiltmilk.com, and I'll send you a download of my listeners-only Christmas mix for 2021. Last call on that one. If you want Christmas music to get you through Christmas Day, go to Spotify and search for 12 Songs of Christmas Radio, my 24-hour playlist of Christmas classics and songs that should be classics. Click Shuffle and you'll get a better Christmas radio experience than you'll get from Christmas radio. If you can, please join my Christmas Music 365 group on Facebook where we can talk about Christmas music throughout the year. And if you haven't already done so, please do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. You can find us at Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, and Spotify. 12 songs is a year around podcast, so we'll keep going even after Christmas is through. I already have a number of interviews in the can for 2022, and we'll have more with many of the guests from the last month to return to next year. I'm taking next week off Because between the show, the New York Times story, the New Orleans Advocate story, the caroling, the trip, DJ set, and Christmas itself, I can use a breather. I'll be back in your podcast feed in two weeks with another new episode. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Earlier, I said I considered J.D. McPherson's Socks and Kelly Finnegan's A Joyful Sound, the best modern Christmas albums. And we heard McPherson at the time. Here's Kelly Finnegan to end the week, the month, the episode, the season, and the year. This is The Only Present Is Me. Talk to you in two weeks. Merry Christmas.